The same issues that gave rise to the Me Too movement in 2017 stalled to a popular trend in re-examining various subjects from Monica Lewinsky to Taylor Swift and being newly critical in terms of how they were treated and portrayed by the press and therefore the public. There seemed to be a general recognition that women are all too often categorized in the media, not by virtue of their achievements, but by virtue of their virtue. And this realization led to a re-examination process of how exactly we frame the stories of women compared to the stories of men who find themselves in similar situations. It was perhaps inevitable that the victims of the most famous serial killing of all time would likewise be given the feminist revision that they undoubtedly deserve to get. And when I first heard that there was going to be a full-length book devoted solely to the victims, I was initially quite excited. With any such endeavor, one of course hopes that new information, new facts, possibly even an identification for Mary Kelly, which is of course the holy grail of ripperology, might possibly be in the offering. These hopes were of course quickly dashed and my initial excitement turned to straight up outrage when the first cover treatments for the book began to circulate and I learned to my disgust that rather than being the feminist work I had envisioned and upholding these women as something separate from their murder, the book descended into titular misogyny, the likes of which Ripperology had never seen before and was in fact called The Five, The Lives of Jack the Ripper's Women. That's right, this pinnacle of feminism gave outright ownership and possession of murder victims to the man who had killed them which is such an unbelievably disgusting and reprehensible thing to do that I can't believe that any author would have signed off on that grotesquerie, much less a woman author purporting to be a champion of these women and, you know, supposedly wresting them from the sexist grasp of indifferent history. The ensuing uproar from all corners of Ripperology saw to a hasty title change, and it is this book, which has only had a whitewashing of the misogyny from its cover and not from its contents, that we are here to discuss today. And that is The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhall. When the book was first released, there was a Rippercast episode devoted to discussing the book that pointed out many of its numerous inaccuracies. But there was one key element missing from that discussion. And that was how the book's inaccurate portrayal of the lives of these women did in fact do the exact opposite of what the author purported to do. This is not a feminist reclaiming of these women and their stories. It is in fact a sexist fantasy that devalues the very real lives of these women and the choices that they make. It is in fact anti-feminist. And I felt that the subject, specifically considering feminism and women's issues as one of the pillars that this book purports to stand upon, needs to be specifically and fully addressed. The lives of women and the issues of women in a book about women, in a subject about the murders of women, needs specific attention. Joining me as we endeavor to discuss with a critical eye feminist perspectives and ripperology are a panel of women. Madeline Kane, who is a Detroit-based author who will be releasing a mystery series in 2022. Samantha Hewlett, who is a former editor of the Whitechapel Society Journal. Suzanne Huntington, who is an admin of several Ripperology boards. Tiffany Durkin, feminist and historian. Amanda Lloyd, who is an admin of Ripperology Books and More Facebook page. And of course, I, your host, Allie Ryder, who is an all-around dilettante 
and no account. Welcome, ladies, to RipperCast. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies, I would like to ask each one of you, how did you get involved in the subject of Ripperology? And I think I'm just going to start with Amanda. Let's go alphabetically. Amanda, how did you get involved in Ripperology? Quite by accident, really. Um, there was a family myth that we had a murder in the family, um, a, a murder victim in the family. And I was doing my family tree in the 1990s. And I was able to verify that, in fact, um, our family are related to Maud Marsh, who was the um, murder victim of George Chapman. And I wanted to read everything about the case. And, of course, every time I wanted to read about George Chapman, he was in a river book. So that's how I actually got into then Jack the River. I've always been interested in criminal history in um, historical crime. So I knew about Jack the Ripper, but that was the first time I really then thought, you know, I'm going to sit down and actually find out more about this subject. And that's how I started. Okay. And Madeline, what prompted your interest in the Jack the Ripper case? Well, I'd read a little bit about it because I was eight years old when the Michael Caine miniseries came out. So I knew a little bit about him. And then, you know, when I was in high school, I got into true crime and rule, et cetera. Read a little bit about it, but then, you know, just kind of moved on. And then when I was probably in the 2000s, I really got into it and, um, you know, started researching it because I had gone through some stuff and really kind of helped put things in perspective for me as a survivor and helped me in recovery because what these women went through was parallel to what I had gone through. And so it just really helped me through the process. And, and I've studied the case since because you know I do love British literature too. Samantha? So, well, I'm quite late into the case because I, even though I obviously knew about it, I didn't really develop an interest until I started working at the Fruit and Wool Exchange in 2011. And I just decided one lunch break to research the local area and uh, discovered quite a bit and that just turned into a kind of obsession and then within a couple of years found actually through Rippercast the Whitechapel Society and uh, the rest is history literally Literally. yeah (laughs) Susie I was first introduced to the subject matter probably late 70s where I got hold of the Stephen Knight book um, The Final Solution without my parents' knowledge read it avidly <laughs> underneath the bedclothes and um, it sort of grew from there and I'm, I've always been interested in history I did a degree in history modern history it, it, for me it, it's one of those things where it's both historical and it's also crime related so it's almost like a sort of perfect storm of interest from my point of view And Tiffany? Um, I'm probably the newest to this to this whole thing i uh, got into uh, the ripper world in 2015 i'm a i'm a pretty big history nerd and i met neil bell through some of the uh richard the third groups on facebook and he made some suggestions to me about some books to read and so i joined some of the groups and started reading things and i attended my first conference um, i think it was 2015 at salisbury and i was hooked after that What was your thoughts when you heard that there was going to be a book devoted to the women before you heard anything about the actual book, just when you heard that there was going to be a book about the five? Were you initially excited? Because I know I was. Very much so. I I thought that it was it was the one 
piece of the jigsaw, one major piece of the jigsaw that was actually missing from a mainstream audience point of view. And I thought this, I mean, I know they've done, obviously Neil Sheldon had done his, his, uh, um, quite short book but really this was a, an, an ideal opportunity to bring all of those threads together you know all the different bits and pieces from the forums that have been researched previously and to make it a sort of cohesive narrative. I agree I was very excited as well all the books that I've read previously were you know written by men and I was really excited and I had a situation when it first came out I didn't know what it was about I just had heard that it was you know a book written by a woman and I was in one of the one of the groups on Facebook and I saw a bunch of men really talking negatively about the book now keep in mind I didn't know anything about it at that time and I think I ended up even kind of having words with somebody because I'm like you know what a woman can't have a you know and I was very disappointed. I had to, to eat my words because she completely blew it. And she, she had an opportunity to do something really good and she blew it. And I think that is the major disappointment or the problem that most people have with this book is that she had the opportunity to show the true reality of these women's lives, which with the possible exception of Catherine Eddowes, did include subsistence level prostitution. And, you know, to show the reader the true harsh choices that these women had to make, and she just wasted the opportunity. Because, uh, let's face it, there there's nothing new in this book. There's no new research about the victims. And even the idea that they weren't prostitutes isn't a new one. It's been bandied about for at least 15 years that I know of. And I personally have been arguing against it for that long. And as a feminist, it is especially aggravating to me. And the reason that I argue against the assertion that, oh, they weren't really prostitutes, besides the fact that it's just a blatantly untrue claim, which should be reason enough to argue against it, is that when you make that argument, much less when you write an entire book devoted to promoting the idea that they weren't really prostitutes, whether you intend to or not, you are promoting the completely sexist idea that if they weren't sex workers, then their deaths were somehow more of a tragedy. Because, uh, well, of course, if they weren't prostitutes, then they didn't really deserve what happened to them. They were just innocent women, as opposed to, well, prostitutes who, it, it's just an occupational hazard. So it's, it's not like it's a tragedy if it happens to prostitutes. Now is it, you know? And writing an entire book to whitewash these women's lives and raise them up as being somehow better than they were and therefore undeserving of their fate, as opposed to being undeserving of their fates just because no one deserves to be murdered. It's just a, a, a reinforcement of sexist stereotype. And frankly, as a feminist, I cannot believe that she devoted a book and is promoting the book based on this premise. She had a chance to confront the reader with the reality of being a dreadfully impoverished woman in 1888 with all of the harsh choices that came along with it. And she flinched. And instead of writing about the reality, she chose this fantasized version of their lives, as if the biggest tragedy here was not that they were brutally murdered, but that they were slandered in the press, which of course they weren't. But yeah, she just, she completely missed the mark, in my opinion. 
I don't know statistically how many, you know, people who consider themselves ripperologists are male, female, but it definitely seems like there's way more males in the field, right? Yeah. Would you say, okay. So I think that most of the women were excited and we wanted her to succeed. We were like, you know, yes, yes. And if she would have done it right, we would have been her biggest army. We would have been her allies. We would have been out there cheering her on and she blew it. She blew it. And now, and we're, I don't think there's going to be any, she's not going to find any woman who really knows anything about the Jack the Ripper case. Who's going to back her up her little army of whoever it is is, that are going after people on Twitter. They clearly don't know anything they're talking about. So I hope maybe, maybe if they watch this, this will, you know, encourage them, read, read some real, read Paul Begg, read, you know, Neil's book. I mean, there's so many worthwhile books. People have been studying this for so long. They know what they're talking about. They're, they're experts. You can, I would consider them experts. Wouldn't you? Yeah. You, you, you're an expert. Mm. You know, your husband's an expert. These, these are the people you should be listening to. I personally felt that it was very difficult to get past the so-and-so thought this and the Polly must have felt this and what have you. And it's like, I don't understand how, how somebody can write it as a factual non-fiction book and yet include attributes that are effectively fictional, as in she thought this and she thought that. That doesn't work for me. As soon as I started reading that bit, that just put me off. I, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I struggled to get past that because I was shouting at the book saying, well, how the hell do you know? How do you know what she was thinking? You know, she's been dead for 133, 134 years. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sophie. I, I think that it read like a novel, and I think that's the bit that disappointed me as well, because it was supposed to be a, yes, a story about the women's lives, and she put, what she did very well, she put the women's lives into context. She put their lives within the era that they lived in, and I, I think she portrayed that very well. She did that very well, putting their lives in context, but she did put a lot of their emotions and feelings and what they must have felt. And that was one of the things that disappointed me as well, because I thought, well, actually, you know, she talks about, um, I think, Catherine Eddowes. Was it Catherine Eddowes that um, held the child that died in her arms? Well, Catherine Eddowes, these women couldn't control the, the babies that they had. It was another mouth to feed. We don't know that she was devastated that the baby died. We don't know that she even held the baby. when the, It was that kind of thing that I felt, well, you're, you're making them into something, you know, a fictional character. Because we don't know the truth of how they felt about these things. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Suja. I think that part, that, the, that was one of the most disappointing parts of the book for me. I think um, one of the interesting things is that Hallie, I'm sure, would cast herself as a feminist historian. And very often, feminist historians are trying to bridge what they consider to be silences in history. I'm not trying to make excuses for them. I think it's a historical to do that. But nevertheless, that would appear to be what her goal was. So even though it's seriously flawed, it would explain why it's written so subjectively and why she assumes that she knows how those, those women felt. And it could equally be argued that some aspects of academia have already headed in that direction of filling in gaps in history where we can't possibly know and that she would just be really part of that. 
But it's such an arrogant thing for a woman in modern times to even present. Like, I'm sitting here with a panel of five other women, and it would be a complete arrogance for me to presume that I would know how you would feel in any given situation. If, say, you had a miscarriage, me presuming how you might feel in that subject, it might be the greatest joy of your life. You might have been dreading that pregnancy, and you might be going, oh, thank whatever God is in the heavens that that miscarriage occur. It might be the biggest tragedy of your life. For me to presume that I would know how you would react in that moment is arrogance of an unbelievable I... sort. And she presumes that in every situation, all five of these women, she presumes the exact same emotional state for every single woman. It's like she has a pattern. All women respond in this manner to this situation. It's like she views women as just a reflection of herself and how she would respond as if women aren't individuals at all. Like there's no understanding that people are individuals. Women are individuals. We are not all carbon cut out copies of one another. It's like she's taking away whatever little bit of agency that they have to make them these eternal victims, not just murder victims, but sort of like the eternal victim of all life and circumstance. And I have like, I was writing like several, like I have notes upon notes, which I won't bore you guys with, but there was just line after line where I'm like, she changes dialogue. She leaves out dialogue. And then to constantly just reflect how Hallie believes this is how a woman responds in this situation with no understanding that these are individual women and not just sort of like the Victorian character of an unfortunate that, sh that she's invented in her head. She's not writing the biography of the five. She's created these caricatures that she's putting on the page and using the biographical details of murder victims to support this puppet that she's created, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think if, if you actually listen to, um, I know that we posted it on one of the Facebook groups, the podcast that she did um, with somebody from the British Library on her favourite books. And if you look at the fact that she's, you know, uh, the screenwriter for Harlots and also written The Scandalous uh, Lady W. Her favourite books were like Little House on the Prairie, Clarissa, um, that sort of thing. And it's, for me, that's very, um, that's very telling of how how the motivation behind the personalities that she creates within the, the, the women that she wishes to portray. It's almost like um, like a, there has to be a pathos in, in, in her characterization. There has to be a tragedy of almost like a sort of unwitting heroine who has to die, who has to um, be a victim of society to warrant the the interest that she has in, in the in the character. Well, not the character. Character is the wrong word, isn't it? In the person. Uh, Ruby Vitorino shared with me a transcript of a speech that Hallie gave in 2020, where she outlines what might be her motives. Um, it was given at the Edinburgh Festival and it was called The Problem with Great Men. And uh, in this lecture, she, sat, she said, this is her quote, while I'm not advocating an end to books and documentaries about monarchs, it's high time that we dismantle the limiting structures of great man history and explore alternative pathways to understanding our past. History should be both dynamic and creative and not be coy about appealing to the heart in an attempt to engage the mind. 
Now, obviously, I think that's drivel, but that is where I believe she is coming from. If you want to try and understand, I wouldn't call her the enemy, but your opposition, if you like, you do need to look at where they're coming from. I do believe she believes in what she's doing, sadly. And I don't mind that as long as you don't lie in order to do it or manipulate the facts or deceive. Like, I don't mind engaging the heart. And here, I think, is where the real tragedy of this is. Like, I believe Amanda said, she had the bone of a great book the way she draws the background that surrounds the the victim I I keep wanting to call them characters because in my mind these are not the canonical canonical five these are not the women I know these are characters that Hallie has created they aren't the five they're characters she's created and the the background that she surrounds them with the detail the colorful the 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 rich lives that she's drawn around them are fantastic like if she had stuck to that and then just put in them without the embellishment I would have thought it was a great book. Honestly, I would have. But when it gets to stuff like where she's talking about Polly Nichols and she says something like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says something like she had lost her children. She had lost her home. She had lost her husband. And it's like, no, my dear Hallie, she had not lost her home or her husband. She had left her home. She had left her husband. She walked out of her own free will and volition. She had a job that she walked away from. She made choices. She didn't just wind up there as a helpless victim of circumstance. She made choices. And she's taking away the agency of these women by denying the fact that they were there in some part due to their own choices. Not saying that the misfortune that befell them weren't real and terrible, and in some ways beyond their control, but they weren't just helpless victim of circumstance. They made choices, like with um, Annie Chapman and how she characterized the landlord story, where she very matter-of-factly states how Annie Chapman spent uh, an afternoon buying beer after beer, but then character when the landlord goes to collect her money for the DOS bed and she doesn't have it, the, the landlord says, okay, well, get out. And Hallie says, oh, if the newspapers had only known. And it's like, whose fault was that, that Annie didn't have the money for the bed? It wasn't the landlord's fault that she'd spent her money on beer. She had a choice there, buy beer or buy a bed. And she chose to spend her money on beer. She wasn't a helpless victim of this man who refused to give her a free bed for the night. She had a choice. She made it. The plain truth is, is that if Hallie had been a better author, who could have made you sympathetic to the fact that these were women who made some bad choices, but they still didn't deserve to be murdered and made you sympathetic to the reality of being an alcoholic in a very desperate time when women didn't have a whole lot of options, when there wasn't mental health services in England and there wasn't the availability when you were considered a fallen woman if you were if she could have taken the actual real lives of these women drawn that same surrounding scenes that she did draw wonderfully and stuck to the actual facts this could have been a great book but she had to make them like pathetic victims instead of authors of, in some ways, they were the authors of their own misfortune. Not saying that they didn't have the deck stacked 
against them. Not saying that the the misfortunes that they that befell them weren't real and in some cases out of their control. But they weren't just helpless victims of circumstance. They made choices that they lived and died by. I think she tried to politicize history, which again is going with current trends and a tendency to do this, to treat the past as a continuation into the present and to bring up current gripes with reflection to the past. Um, And it's usually involves a complete misunderstanding of the past because we can never know, none of us will ever know how people in the past thought because their mindset would be totally different from ours. We probably wouldn't, wouldn't even be able to communicate with them because of the way we think compared to the way they think. But even so your grandparents or your great grandparents, you might find, you know, on certain levels, you cannot get a sense of understanding because their appreciation of life is so different. So I'm totally agreeing with you, but I've got to, all I'm trying to do is look at, because I think pretty much we are going to be in agreement with respect to all of the things that she's done wrong, uh, all of the, the, the fallacies in her book. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's part of, and, and, and ripperology has just come under the attention of a trend that's going on everywhere and particularly in history. I think well, I think she's created literary characters that are suitable for a TV adaptation. That, oh, isn't sorry, she getting a, a film or I know something. that sounds... She I think she's, I'd heard, I'm sure she put on Twitter that, that she'd already got um, the... Yeah. Sold the rights or whatever it was. It's, I find it, that sort of attitude, like, it's very cynical. Basically, she did. She yeah. has indicated that she is working on getting a TV series for it at this time. But that's the path that Harlots took. That's the path that Lady W took. So that is something that as of, I think, earlier this week or last week, she indicated is happening. Of course. That's, that's very disappointing to me to know that this is going to get a, a bigger audience. I really hate, and, and I think it's something kind of like what Samantha said, that we're seeing a trend of you know, people changing history, changing facts. It really bothers me that this is happening because, you know, these people who are following her are, are going to think that, I mean, let's keep it real. Let's not, let's not, you know, like you were saying, Allie, I mean, it was hard. Life was hard back then. And, and it was their choices. It doesn't have to be this flowery, you know, tragic story. Let's keep it real. Let's keep it dirty and gritty and, and not, I don't know, not try to change things. I have a, I have a big problem with this. Well, one of the things that I found very interesting, I, I was, <laughs> I was reading Hallie's biography. And, um, and so I am, I am a person who I don't lie. I, I can probably count on how many times in my life I've told a lie on one hand. And it's predominantly because one, I just don't care about people enough to lie to them. And I, I just, don't care enough about what you think about me to, to lie to you. And I, I just lying is something that mm, it, it, it bothers me on a, on a deep level. So you can, with the current state of the world and what's going on, you can understand like the constant aneurysm I'm, I'm having. But um, because I don't lie, I'm very well versed, especially when I'm reading and like all the ways you can lie by saying nothing but the truth, just rearranging facts to mislead. And I was reading her biography and there was a statement in Hallie's biography where it was talking about her education and, and it stated that she had embarked upon her PhD at Leeds and later uh, completed her thesis in 18th century women's studies. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a really interesting sentence. Like it, it seems to indicate that she has a PhD. She embarked 
embarked on her PhD at Leeds and finished her thesis. I'm like, but it doesn't actually say she got a PhD. So does she have a PhD or does she not have a PhD? Lynn's the impression she got a PhD, but of course she doesn't actually have a PhD. And I do want to put it in a caveat. I do not care whether or not the lady has a PhD or not. I have known plenty of people who have PhDs who are 100% intellectually insufficient. And I have known plenty of people who barely graduated from high school and they're sparkling wits. So whether you have, a, I don't have a PhD and I'm brilliant. So I don't care that she doesn't have a PhD. What I care about is like, it was a very interestingly crafted sentence to lend the impression that she had a PhD on her official biography. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, oh, that's basically what she's done with the five, which is when the facts of someone's life don't line up with the story that you want to tell, we're just going to rearrange the facts to lend the impression that we want to give. Like when she was talking about um, sugar, uh, again, sorry, names, Polly Nichols, where, you know, the statement about, look what a jolly bonnet I have. She left that part out of the, the biographical, like where she's talking about the story of her life. And she, she just said, like, she made a little sassy comment and said she'd be back with her DOS money soon. And she only discussed that line later when she was talking about how the newspapers had landed her and made her out to be a prostitute. And there was no indication. And that line could have been she was referring to, you know, she was going to pawn the hat. And I was like, really, Hallie? Really? So it's 1.30 in the morning. She's talking to a dude and going, look at my hat. I'm looking cute. I'm going to go earn my DOS money and be back too sweet at 1.30 in the morning. And you're thinking she's talking about going and pawning a hat at 1.30 in the morning. Where's she going to go pawn that hat, Hallie? Tell me where. Where, where is she going to go pawn that hat? It's like that rearranging of the facts to like present the, the narrative that we want. The same, she did the same thing with Annie Chapman where she, you know, she's walking out the door at one o'clock in the morning saying, hold my bed, I'll be back soon. I'm going to earn my, you know, I'll earn my money and be back. But like, there's no indication that she's a prostitute. Well, really, Hallie, how is she going to earn that DOS money at one o'clock in the, in the morning? She, she rearranges the facts. She leaves out details that don't support the narrative that she wants. And when I read that in her own biography, and I was like, okay, well, if she rearranges the facts of her own life to present the narrative that best suit what the story she's trying to tell, it's not like I can be outraged that she's doing it to other people. It's just outrageous to me because like, it literally is the feminist fight that I've been fighting for so very long in a subject of interest to me. And I know it's just a hobby to her. It's just a money-making endeavor to her. But she's basically saying these women didn't deserve to be killed. They weren't prostitutes. It shouldn't have been about the press did these women wrong for calling them prostitutes. There was a better focus for this book and she missed the opportunity. It's insulting, I think, not only to feminists, but to anybody who has the most basic knowledge of Victorian history, the way she's trying to change things. I mean, they weren't leaving at 1.30 or whatever in the morning to go work down at the local chipper to make their money. I mean, she was, she was going to go sell herself. And so what? That's what they did back then. It doesn't make her a bad person. Quit holding them to our standards, modern day standards. She was a prostitute. And I, it makes me wonder, as I was reading the book, I was wondering what these women would think about what Haley uh, made of their story. 
you know, would they be insulted? Would they be happy? Like, oh yeah, she's making us, you know, sound better than what, what we were. I'm not sure how to, you know, to say that, but it's just, it's insulting. It's insulting. So she definitely made these out to be women whose things just happened to them. And they just kind of like, oh, I'm a damsel in distress, help me. And I really think that, you know, instead of these were women who are survivors and they were doing the best they could to survive given their circumstances. And we need to be um, cognizant of that. And I think that this whole sleeping beauty theory, as I'm going to call it, AKA the myth that she's perpetuating that most of them were asleep and not, um, not involved in sex work to survive when they were killed. I think that it's definitely takes away the victim's autonomy and takes away the fact that it misses the complete point that they were doing what they could do to survive. These women were survivors. Yes, they were victims of this killer, but we need to remember that they were survivors in very harsh conditions. And that's something that in a way should be, it shouldn't necessarily be commended, but we need to just understand the reality of their situation. So it's a very sort of um, privileged middle-class interpretation of these very working class women that she clearly doesn't have a clue about. And I think Hallie's a typical case in point of where you say you don't know what you don't know. And she's blissfully ignorant about so many of the facts. And that's why she's constantly saying, I'm going to be revealing something new and then promptly doesn't do so. What I found to be really interesting was um, she kept putting middle-class expectations upon women who were desperately poor. And she did not, does not fail to understand that when you do research into histor- a historical subject, especially one as heavy as these, you have to check everything, your biases, everything at the door and go in and get a good understanding of their times and the times they're living in. Expectations versus reality. Their reality was much different for poor people. So those expectations are going to be different. If you do have to go walk the streets to earn extra money, unfortunately, that was what you did because it's better to do that than to starve. The impression I get from reading her book is that not so much that she wants you to make the women's lives uh, look better but that what happened to them was actually caused by men it was caused by the men in their lives the police they de- delegated the women as prostitutes because they were homeless and they were drunk throughout her book she's actually blaming the men for what happened to these women it's not so much that they they weren't prostitutes. She's trying to put the point over that it was men that made them prostitutes in the eyes of the public because they were homeless, they were drunk, they were you know uh, no better than they ought to have been. I don't think that she she wanted to make the women's lives look more romantic or well maybe maybe there's a part of that. I think it's more she wanted to put the the view over that what happened to these women was the fault of society and men in particular. Feminists these days in particular see everything as structural. So women behave in certain ways due to the structure of our society. And then they extrapolate that across history. So her argument about these women is also structural. So none of them have any agency within their society because the structures of that society are patriarchal and therefore they are doomed, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what she did, Amanda and Samantha, is that she basically didn't, these women were trying to survive. They did have their own choices in their lives. And she just basically took away their agency and she made them into these perfect Victorian heroine like Tessa the Durberbells. 
the thing that sent me well let me just be perfectly honest there were so many things that sent me in this book when she crafted out of this whole cloth like mary kelly's flight from the parisian sex traffickers and i'm just sorry what it just in sounds ridiculous doesn't it <laughs> of all the holy like she took a one-off statement that joseph barnett said that mary kelly said about how well paris wasn't what i expected it to be and another um story that someone had said about how she went and got some dresses uh, from a french lady and from that she concocted this entire scenario about a flight from parisian sex traffickers <laughs> and i was just this is not a biography this is legitimately like a bodice ripping pulp fiction this is like the trashy romance novel that I used to steal from my mother back in the day and read them under my covers like this is not a biography this is full sale fantasy she even acknowledges like we don't know what Mary Kelly's real backstory is she acknowledges we don't know what the truth of Mary Kelly is but then out of all of this she she just well, I, I, I'm going to choose to believe this statement was true and I'm going to choose to believe this and I'm going to concoct this very elaborate scenario where she's fleeing from Parisian sex traffickers. But then, so she's, she supposedly has this very narrow escape from these sex traffickers and then she goes right back to the woman who supposedly set her up with them to demand her dresses back. Like, what? What What sense does that make, Hallie? Like, like think through the logic of this for a moment. Like, I just escaped, you know, possible sex enslavement, but man, I really like that frock with the little frilly lace insert so I'm gonna go back and set myself up again like it doesn't make sense it just doesn't make sense like she wanted to craft this story about how sex trafficking happened in Paris and all of that that's like a great story it would have been great color for a fic like if she wanted to put that on her harlot show tv show fine throw it there it would have been great but if you're at I actually read, I read a, a criticism of the criticism that Hallie was receiving. And it was like, does it really matter if not all of the details are accurate? Like she's trying to draw a picture. And I'm like, yes, it actually does matter because she's literally going out there and saying that she's telling the real story of these women who have been neglected by history and ripperologists. And she alone has been the one to really bring these women to light and tell their story. And first of all, she's like told nothing new about them. And 90% of what she's telling about them is fantasy. It's complete invention. She's no more telling the story of these women than the, the Johnny Depp movie. What was that? From Hell. From Hell has a more accurate depiction of Mary Kelly than her book does. And I'm like, that's a sad statement of that. When you're writing a historical biography and a Johnny Depp movie has a slightly more valid interpretation of one of your characters than I'm, you do. I'm reckoning Anne Hathaway for Mary Jane Kelly in <sighs> the uh, film adaptation. Anne Hathaway. And she'll win an Oscar uh, with an amazing British accent. <sighs> it would not surprise me. <laughs> Or would it be an Irish accent? Or would it be a Welsh oh, accent? There's, there's the question. What about have a slight Parisian cast, you know? <laughs> I was just going to say about one of the, the, the things that, that I find quite disturbing because of the, the, the way that, that Hallie is so media, particularly social media savvy, 
is that the way that she deals with with the criticism that that is at times flung at her and i'm not disputing that sometimes it is flung at her and she she either deals with it by literally you know calling somebody a troll that's that's the first one she's been what was it the other day she was being mercilessly trolled well i'm admin on nine facebook groups and i'll tell you when somebody's being trolled or not and what i've seen on twitter my dear is not being trolled it is actually asking you constructively to justify certain aspects of your book and she deals with that with if past the troll issue she deals with that by quite often she'll quote the criticism and then she'll phrase it in a way that it's she's utterly outraged by this actual criticism but then she doesn't answer the criticism she just waits for her followers if you may, if you will to actually do a th- the thread below expressing their their absolute outrage at this at this person who's actually criticized her she, it's very clever she she portrays the actual criticism and lets everybody speak for her so that they go away by by going that's absolutely outrageous she's just being bullied she's being bullied she's being mercilessly trolled but she isn't because she, she all she's done is made made all these acolytes outraged but not actually answered the criticism there's no well, no answer to the criticism if you have no answer it's mm. easy to manufacture outrage and let the outrage and machine roll over the opposition if you mm. can't actually answer it, I mean, they do it on the right, they do it on the left. It's, it's an easy response when you have no actual answer. It's a, it's a time-honored tactic. One of the reasons I'm not on social media is I love that and I would be there forever. I would never be <laughs> off. I would be an endless fight. But it, it is. When you have no reason to answer, outrage is, you know, the easiest defense. As far as I can see, she's trolling ripperology to a large yes. degree. Yes. Because no, actually, it, yeah. most I looked at a series of headlines in 2019 relating to her book, and nearly everyone is things like... Um, Jack the Ripper historian slams stupid and offensive trolls who likened her a Holocaust denier, likened her to a Holocaust denier. When Hallie Rubenhold's book took a different view on the infamous killings, she wasn't expecting the backlash. Uh, she tells us about some ripperologists who didn't want her book to be written. So she's actually gained great currency from this so-called history war. And I actually think she's very much the troll because it's uh, anyone with half a brain or half any knowledge of the case can see that her book is terrible. Well, and it's not even a new tactic. Way back in the day when Patricia Cornwell came out with her atrocity, it was the exact same tactic. She didn't how, how have did an she argument. deal with criticism? Because that's slightly before my time. She did the exact same thing. It was, oh, the she hired bodyguards because she was like, <laughs> The ripperologists are going to get me. I'm like, I'm sorry, honey. Have you ever met a ripperologist? We're on our couch eating Doritos. We're, we're not going after you. Nobody's coming for you. But it was the same thing. It was manufacture the outrage. I'm afraid of these ripperologists. And we're like, no, we're just saying your book is terrible. Your logic is flawed and mm-hmm. you have no argument. In 2019, uh, the WS did a small little conference, a symposium really, called The Victims. And that was focusing on, on the five victims. Um, Frog Moody was the one who uh, ran that. And um, Hallie appeared and she gave a talk. And she seemed perfectly nice. I met her, took a photograph. Um, she promised to reveal some incredible new facts. 
and probably did not do so. But uh, she, that was back, I think that was 2019. It might have been just before her book was finally released. And she seemed perfectly sane at that time. <laughs> did, ha- well, did Holly, Holly, did she um, consult with anybody, you know, any of the more well-known ripperologists before she published her book? You know, Paul Begg, Neil, or any, I mean, did she consult with any of them before she came quite, out with this book? She, she was dealing with um, uh, Drew Gray for a bit, wasn't she? But then think because of uh, Drew is very much for the whole sort of crossover between academia and um, the ripperology community. And I think he was, you know, sort of wanting to put out an olive branch, really, to try and reconcile the whole setup. Um, I think the last I heard was that Drew had actually been blocked by her on Twitter. So I'm assuming that didn't go down all that well. There were a couple of ripperologists, excuse me, there were a couple of ripperologists that I know who were reaching out to try and do the thing you know pointing out some of the inaccuracies and trying to have reasonable discourse with her and just getting blasted for no you know with unfair criticisms and basically eventually just giving up because they realized it wasn't going to be uh, a fruitful discussion and there was one referologist in particular that i know of who clung on way longer than any of the others and was just saying oh you just aren't giving her a chance oh you're just not giving her a chance and then in the end he too ended up getting fairly badly burned so she was given quite a lot of opportunity by most of the riverologists i know and uh i wrote her off the minute the title came out the the title um just absolutely sent me over the edge and i wrote her off instantaneously (laughs) that was like nope line in the sand done and to get off track for a moment, and, and we will, you know, coming back, but I do want to say on the subject of the title, because I know she's going to make this argument um, that her publishers picked that title. And that's hogwash, because the fact that the very fact when the outrage over the title happened, the title immediately got changed. So the title could have been changed at any point if she had pointed out to her publishers, hey, I'm writing a book about feminism and women, and we can't give ownership of women to the man who murdered him. We have to change this title. The mere fact that the title was changed proved she could have had that title changed at any point, and she didn't. And she, you know, she promoted that book under that title. Um, but yeah, I did want to put that in because I know that's going to be her response. But to get back to the subject, like I do know many ripperologists were reaching out to her and trying to have reasoned discussion with her not just the crazies of the world, you know, trying to say, hey, this isn't an accurate representation and uh, got burned kind of. For I guess it. what I'm asking is at what point did that change? I think you have to ask each I do know there was a there was a there was a ripper cast where the book title came out and there it was a Dear Boss episode where in Dear Boss episodes, we just kind of riff on different topics. And there was a 20 minute rant where I went off on the title of the book. I lost my mind. And I think Jonathan was like, okay, we cannot release this to the public because um, A, I still, he, he was still hoping that he could get Hallie on the Rippercast at that point. And he's like, we will scare her off for all time. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. It was bad. I was I was outraged. I was legitimately outraged. I was so angry. They're not so angry that most ripperologists, excuse me, are not so angry that that she brought in feminist claptrap to quote one review. It's number one, she's insulting their field. Number two, she's basically taking a giant 
steaming crap all over the uh, field that she got most of her research from that she basically piggybacked on. Number three, she's basically insulted their intelligence and gaslit when they've asked her questions and asked honest questions. They're trying to approach her in good faith, but she does not believe it's in good faith. I was going to say that I can remember that Tally was on a, a lot of the Facebook groups and I can remember there was something happened to do with Paul Begg um, and I think it went downhill quite rapidly from there. Because she, I think she referred to Paul Begg as a troll. Um, that was on Twitter, I think. Oh, was yeah. that on Twitter? Oh, sorry. I think it was. Uh, yeah, it, I, think it, it, I know there was something on Twitter. Yeah, on but Twitter. it must have overlapped. It must have overlapped onto Facebook because that's how, because I'm not really a big Twitter person. And it, it definitely overlapped into a couple of the groups and then uh, she went off in a huff. But I mean, to call Paul Begg a troll is, <laughs> I mean, that, that, I mean, that is just, he's one of the nicest, most constructive, learned patient people you could ever care to meet i mean it's the same with we got we were talking about it earlier before we started recording about mark ripper i mean she's accused him of saying that she was a holocaust denier we wait know mark she ripper. accused mark That's... ripper oh i'll fight her now mark ripper is my boyfriend not really i'm i'm like <laughs> But I, I mean, just that's... want to point out that that is not a true statement. And if Mark Ripper's listening to this, I apologize <laughs> right now that I said that. Sorry, Mark. But I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Mark's criticism is just, I mean, we said this before, it's just so beautifully eloquent. It really is. It's just, it just demolishes, it, it demolishes the book in the most constructive and understandable way. I mean, Mark Ripper really has a skill, like his takedown of Trevor Marriott's plagiarism book stands yeah. among some of my favorite writing of all time, like legitimately, mwah, chef's kiss. Mark Ripper is a gentleman, like I can take somebody down but when I do, there's blood on the walls. Mark Ripper takes somebody down and they just fall in very neatly dissected yeah. pieces. It's not a personal. Mark makes it made it very clear in the, in in that uh, uh, podcast. He made it very clear. This was his viewpoint. It got nothing to do with Hallie as a person. It was purely to do with how he sees history should be written in regards to facts. And then he demonstrated where he felt that her book was not up to scratch where that was concerned. Concerned. And then from that, from the day the day after that was actually um, published, that uh, that Rippercast was published, I remember seeing everybody going absolute bananas. I think the first first tweet was, "Does anybody know a good libel lawyer?" And then it was, "I've just been called a Holocaust denier." You look, you weren't called a Holocaust de denier. That's absolutely outrageous. You were not called David Irving. You were not called a Holocaust denier. To actually say, turn around and say that, and have the nerve to say that, and twist it so that I don't understand what I struggle with is I don't understand an audience that will just take that spoon feed that and just take it in and not question it because that is a pretty serious allegation. I mean, if anything, I'd be, if I was Mark Ripper, I'd be looking for a libel lawyer who would be the opposite way around because that's a pretty serious defamation that you've said there. Um, mm. and, and I just feel that, that I cannot, for the life of me, understand an audience that doesn't challenge something, that allegation that's so serious in my naivety. Anyway, I've had my little run. But, get, but getting back to what you were saying, Susie, I'm wondering whether... Like I said before, even though, yes, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of Hanley in particular, but at the same time, her audience seem already to be primed to hear what they want yeah. to hear. I'm just wondering now if maybe a little bit will change now, because so much of the response, I believe, has been from men. 
And I'm wondering now maybe if she sees or, or her followers hear from a group of women who um, have been studying this field, have been around. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I feel like I know quite a bit. So I'm wondering if her followers, if they hear from women, maybe this will change their mind and maybe have them seek a little more information or maybe take things a little more serious. But, you know, the facts, do you think this will have any effect on, on I this? had more faith in the human race prior to 2016, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, I, I do believe that we, we aren't a people who understand nuance. We don't necessarily look at why people do things. We only look at what they do. And we judge on what they do and not why do they do it. We don't try to understand what is somebody's motivation? You know, why are they doing something? And so we go into things with very entrenched ideas. You know, we're not we aren't open to examining our own biases. I am very biased in a lot of ways. You know, I am a feminist. I am a this. I believe that. I have biases. And I believe that there will be a small section of people who will listen to what we have to say and they will take it on board and they will consider it. I do believe the larger majority is not going, you're always preaching to the choir in a, in a large segment of the population. Um, I believe this is more for the people who won't have made up their minds so much. But no, I don't believe like the people who believe that there's value in telling a story that promotes an idea, even if it's a false one, those people aren't going to be swayed. They're going to still say, oh, well, but does it matter if it isn't true as long as the feeling is true? And those kind of people aren't people that reason's ever going to read. Like it's the, the feeling that matters, not the facts. And you can't convince those people. You can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't arrive at by reason. If it's the emotion that is what they got there by, reason isn't going to get them out of it. So we're not going to sit there and say, well, she misrepresented the facts. This isn't true. And they're just going to say, well, it was a good story. Does it matter? Because they don't care about the facts. They're not invested in the story. They don't care about Mary Kelly or Catherine Eddowes or the reality of these women's lives. It's just a good story. It's just a, it's a good story. What does it matter whether it's true? Like, does it matter that I believe, in my opinion, that she's victimized these women all over again? Does my opinion matter? No, not any more than Jane Smith, who believes it's a good story. Well, everyone I, has a different truth, don't they? Yeah, everyone has. And a while different we're in that universe, then there isn't any truth at all. Mm -hmm. Which drives me crazy. But... Indeed. <laughs> so it just it just depends on what what matters more to you: the good story or the real truth. Where do you lie? And Hallie lies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make that joke there, but I was like, oh, I don't know if it'll <laughs> if it'll make it on. So anyway. I mean, I agree with you. I, I think it's it's never a good a good idea to try and persuade anyone to change their point of view because they will, especially in these times. But it doesn't stop you from still stating what the truth is, regardless. Let me ask you, ladies, a question because I am interested in this. Have you guys ever been confronted with out and out misogyny or sexism in the world of ripperology? I'll, I'll take that one. Go ahead, Tiffany. I'll start out on that one. Um, I, uh, you know, we're not going to name names here, but of I course. have witnessed um, a situation with someone on this panel that um, I have a lot of regrets about. There was a, a person in this world who or in this group who has been shunned, fortunately, but 
he made a comment uh, hoping that someone would get raped. And I remember sitting at a conference with this particular woman and this man walked in. And all of these people who had defended this woman online, this friend of mine, and they started talking to him like nothing had happened, like it was no big deal. And he walked up to me and said hi or something. And I was just like, oh, hi. And I walked away and I walked back to my friends and this person was like, she didn't say much. But when I got home, I was like, why did I even talk to this man? And why did I not confront him about what he said? And if I could go back in time, I would. I, I wanted to do more than that, to be honest. But that was that was my my major eye opener there was this man went publicly and said these things and nobody that I know of really called him out on it. Nobody like the same people who were saying online, oh, you know, he's a jerk, and blah, blah, blah. But when he walked in that door, these same people were talking to him like they were best friends. And that was shocking to me. That was shocking to me. And that's I kind of started pulling away from people for that. I, I was actually on the thread um, when that happened. And I, um, if you remember, Ali, I actually questioned it because I didn't read it that way. Do you remember? And I said, well, I don't think that is what, what he meant. Because I didn't believe when I read it that anybody, you know, would come out with something like that. It was only later that looking back, I thought, well, perhaps he did. But if you, you remember me questioning it at the time, Ali, and I actually said to you, I don't think that's what he's what he meant. How can you do, how can you say that though? If a man says that a woman should get raped, you should believe him. I mean, there's no there's no excuse for that. He didn't use the word that. He didn't yeah, that the way word. he phrased what? it, it was something like, "I'd like to take you into the woods," and um, just, like, it was like, yeah, "Take you into the woods." Down an alley. Down an alley. Uh, he said. Yeah. Down an alley. Yeah, take you into an alley and and show, yeah. and then he put like a kissy face on it, where it was pretty fairly clear, like violence of some sort, and then the kissy face and yeah. Blood at the time, at the time, I just thought, whoa, it just seemed well, it was just surprising anybody would come up with that something like that, wouldn't it, really? And at the time, I thought, which one here is sort of taking, you know, you know, there was a. A mistaken um, interpretation, and, and I, at the time I was like, no, 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 he, he wouldn't, he didn't mean it like that, because I, I didn't expect somebody on Facebook in front of everybody else, so they're actually really, you know, threatening a woman on Facebook like that. It, it, it seemed bizarre, but in fact, looking back, and obviously I've thought about it since, it, it, it is what he meant. It couldn't really have been anything else. If I'd been there, I would have called that out. Um. I do not tolerate that. I don't think virology should tolerate it. And I think they need to take a stronger stance against that behavior when it happens. Yeah. And that is, and that's one of the interesting things where it was like, I do believe that there is misogyny and sexism in virology. Mm -hmm. Just like there is misogyny and sexism in any subject, any category, any field you're in, because misogyny and sexism is an integral part of society, period. Mm -hmm. But I will say this also, when that person made that rape comment about me in my life, most people, if there's a vague comment that can be read either way, I have never once had a man stand up for me and call out somebody. Most of the time, to be perfectly honest with you, because every man I know knows I am well capable of defending myself mm -hmm. and know I can probably do it better than they can. But Ripperology is the one place, and it was, again, Mark Ripper, gentleman extraordinaire, 
poo. As I was reading that comment and a few people had responded and kind of just let it go, Mark Ripper immediately, while I was still sitting there formulating my response in my head as to how I was going to respond to this comment, Mark Ripper immediately went, hang on, are we going to just sit there and pretend that he did not just say what he just said? And even though it was a vague comment that, oh, well, you could take it either way, you couldn't. It was very clear what he meant. That was the first and only time in my life where a man went immediately and said, no, we're not going to pretend he didn't just do what he did and immediately called it out. And that is why, like when I say I will defend him till the day I die. And it's not like Mark Ripper, you know, we've met three times, you know, he owes me nothing. He, <laughs> he, he has nothing to gain by that except doing the right thing for the right reason. And, and that happened in Ripperology by a Ripperologist. Do we have problems? Absolutely. But it's generally speaking, it's by the fringe. It's by the people who nobody takes seriously. Nobody thinks are Ripperologists. Nobody, it's not by anybody, anybody takes seriously. You know, Can I just say that I, I've never had any yeah. And um, uh, especially as someone who used to go quite a lot to the interim meetings, which would basically involve me and a bunch of blokes, the vast majority of the time. For some reason, women, other women would never make the meetings. And I was always made to feel very welcome, very equal. Yeah. And I've, I've just never, ever entered my brain that there was any threat or, or any any kind whatsoever. So uh, my, my experience has been wholly good. I was going to say on the on the flip side of that, um, three male ripperologists um, told told individual stories of one particular female mem- member of the community mm-hmm. who who was known for being inappropriate with men and being suggestive with them. And oh, the yeah. first one of them in particular, the first time that he met her, um, she groped him. Um, Very now, well known for hand on the trousers. Yeah, yeah, and um, for me, that's. We have to, it, it, it swings both ways for a be- for want of a better expression. You know, misogyny, misandry. You know, it's it's interesting what, what uh, Tiffany was saying, how she'd said, how you'd said that the, the way that you dealt with it and how you felt that in the benefit of hindsight, you'd have dealt with it in a different way. Only one of the men actually confronted this lady about it. Um, the other two men just didn't know, they, they were flabbergasted. They didn't know what to, what to say about it. Do you know, so I think that there is a, a definite it it does run both ways with 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 things like that so it's not just men being inappropriate to women it's women being appropriate to men as well i mean i can totally speak to that because <laughs> my husband was dramatically and obsessively stalked by a woman in ripperology who literally wrote him hundreds of emails and they were deeply disturbing like this woman thought that he was speaking to her in code through the radio and through tv programs and through coded messages on random websites and she would say things like you know i I, i'm i'm getting close to finding you i found this steven writer in x place is that you and ali won't keep us apart for long and i know (gasps) you're you're waiting for me to come for you and i'm getting close and and it was i mean dozens of emails a day like we were keeping like a record for the police like it was and and it's somebody y'all know like if i said the name you would know the name and 
And this is, you know, and then of course there was another person who was later convicted of cyber stalking somebody else that y'all would know the name of who was a, a female who also cyber stalked my husband. So I have just my husband, I have two very <laughs> fantastic examples of uh, the fact that this subject matter does attract some not so stable individuals, male and female. Um, but yeah, it is, I can't say it's just the men for sure. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that probably led to my husband in part, not totally, but in part just going, yeah, I'm kind of done with the subject because yeah, it, it was legitimately, I, you know, I've had in my life, just in general, as a woman, I've had stalkers, I have had peeping toms and stuff, but this, even for me, this was like, whoa, man, this is a lot. But yeah, it was it was interesting. And, you know, from a woman, not a man. I would like to add, you know, I, I made that comment about that one particular situation. But I have to say, you know, since 2015, I go to the conferences and I did 99.9% .9 of the men have been amazing and complete gentlemen. I fly over a lot of times myself and my husband has relationships like Kieran breaks, you know, he'll send him a message and say, Hey, Kieran, could you keep an eye on my wife while she's over there to make sure she's okay. And Kieran, you know, yeah, of course, you know, so I feel comfortable enough around this group of men that I have no problem. I know if I go to London and I'm going to be going to this conference that these guys are going to keep an eye out. So you know, please don't take my example of that one time, me thinking that, you know, my experience in ripperology has been, is, has been great. The men have been great. So I, I just don't want anybody to think that I'm. Well, and it's also yeah. like, I remember Tiffany when we were uh, stupid and lost trying to find the conference that one time and we're texting people. And I had like three different people say, if you're lost, we will come and find you and get you. And it's like, I have never with the core group of ripperologists, and I know if anybody can be a ripperologist, I've never had anybody go out of their way to try to make me feel bad. I've Except for, again, in every group is going to have their ugh, people. But Ripperology as a whole, I believe, does a very good job of weeding out the fringe element. And I think what happens, though, is, is that the, the fringiest of the fringe have the loudest voices in all cases and scenarios, because the people like Mark Ripper are much too gentlemanly to get into a slagging match with someone like Hallie on Twitter. They're just not going to do it. It's beneath their dignity. Someone like I believe Trevor Marriott got into a huge slagging match with Hallie Rubenhalt. Nothing's beneath his dignity. He's perfectly happy to get into a slagging match. And is he necessarily the best example that I would want representing? No, he's not. But he's the one. And then she can point to him and go, oh, look, look at that. That's the example of ripperology that that gets upheld. Is that who I want representing me? No, I want somebody who writes his own books at the very least. Well, so what Hallie's done is she's managed to take those isolated incidences and, and, and created an entire movement out of it. Um, she's just, you know, and that's that's well, obviously it's wrong. I mean, we doesn't well that that's her currency, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, you know, and, and like the lights. I think as well, there's an issue 
because we use these terminologies like ripperology or the ripperology community, they're so ill-defined as to what that actually means, that, they're, that or there's a ripperologist. Uh, Trevor Marriott is, is a very good example of that. Now, I would term Trevor Marriott as being part of the ripperology community, in inverted commas, in quotes, because of he is a published author on, on the subject. But would you call Trevor Marriott's views, and in particular his little um, feminist spat with Hallie on Twitter, as being reflective of the ripperology community? Well, obviously not. I mean, I can remember when people were, were, as it was actually going on, and everybody was just like shaking their heads and going, oh God, here we go, this is just making matters so much worse. But of course, nobody can actually turn around on Twitter and say, actually, Trevor, wind your neck in because of you're out of order because of how he's blocked all the reasonable people. So, well, of course, because if she has to engage with the reasonable people, that destroys her argument. Exactly. But if we can pump up the craziest, like, look at the monkey dance. This is what I'm fighting against. It makes her argument for her. And the newspaper headlines love it too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think I think that uh, most men have been have been fine. I do, I've not experienced any. I've had I've had spats with with you know you're gonna you're gonna find misogynist sexist people in all walks of life. You're gonna find that wherever you go, whatever club you join, whatever you're gonna find people. But as ripperology as a whole, as a community, I've not really found it sexist or um, I can never say the word misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> I can never say it. Um, it I go, I um, no. I, I think on the whole that, and but also I'm one of these people. I'm not really a feminist in the sense that I don't feel. I suppose it's because I am the age I am. But I feel that when I'm with a man or I'm talking to men, that I don't feel that I'm not equal. That I am on the same level as them. I don't expect to be treated as anything less. I don't. I don't. I don't look for it. I suppose either. I've not really found a, a real problem within the ripperology community at all. I saw an interview with um, Mary Beard, who is obviously very highly considered as a historian. And in that interview, she actually talks about how upset she gets when people when she experiences mansplaining on Twitter. And as far as I can see, that really reveals more about how she feels about herself than anyone. Yeah questioning her arguments because like you I I think of enough about myself that no one can mansplain to me because that wouldn't even happen in, in my universe so I, I just I just find it really interesting that someone who is a dame who is so highly considered will still have that element about her where she feels that a man can patronize her just by questioning her beliefs or view that she's put forward so I, I think it's down to individual women as well and how they feel about themselves. I think there's an element of that. I think certainly it's to do with confidence within yourself. To yeah. But also I think, you know, as you get older, you have more She's experience. She's quite old well, though. Men. You have more experience yourself with men. You bring up men. It all helps to actually, um, how it, it, it teaches you how to deal with weird situations with, with the opposite sex and, and with your own sex. You know, I mean, you know, you can be patronised by your own gender, you know, by other women. Um, and I think it is very much a sort of a, an attitude thing. I think somebody like um, Hallie, for example, uses that 
to promote yeah. her own agenda. But I'd, I'd be very surprised if deep down she does really feel intimidated by it all. I think she just, you know, and, and women like her, they're using it to promote themselves. by, like, oh, look at for me, I'm being the victim here. She can more than hold her own, can't she? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's what the point I'm I, I think at, it could know. be a combination of both. I'm willing to give her some charity in the sense that I don't think people always outright lie about every single thing that they're doing or saying. Um, yes, there's manipulation, but I think there could also be an element of, you know, imposter syndrome, especially if you are literally relying on other people's research. I think what's interesting as well is that when you talk about using other people's research, the ironic thing is that she's mentioned all about the fact that it's all about white middle-aged males and yet the most if not the most important but certainly one of one of the most important researchers that she's used and quoted in her book is is Deborah Arif who's obviously female Oh, yes. But I mean, getting away from Hallie herself, um, some of the issues that she does raise about, you know, like we said about um, her attitude towards virology. When she wrote out her book, she talks about, I mean, that's the impression I've got. She's blaming men throughout the book. That's how I read her book, that somehow she's blaming what happened to the victims because of the men. But actually, going back, to those times I mean people talk about misogyny which is an overused word really we use it you know like but actually it wasn't misogyny that was the the the, um, the, the main society you know it wasn't the main famous society then it was a patriarchal society you know which is different and but men in that time did respect women but we had specific roles in life then and women were weren't really expected to veer into the into the male world and no more would a man have gone into the female world we had separate roles in life and yes there was this very strong moral structure within the Victorian society so women who walked the street were looked down not just by the men but women too they were looked down as really being the lowest of the low they were the fallen women they were the women that had lost you know they were but when Hattie's talking about you know the police and and everything what I find interesting was that she suggests very much that it was the attitudes of the police and society that delegated these women that, that they were prostitutes but did it actually affect their investigation and when you actually look into it I don't think there was this you know we we don't want to we just can't be bothered to look into these these women's death the dirt in the gutter we don't need to look into their murders that wasn't true at all but how do you sort of tries to make out that these women were so disrespected and because they were homeless that society's attitude was that they were they were prostitutes simply because they were homeless and alcoholic. She completely misses what they were doing, completely mis- dismisses the fact that they were going out in the early hours of the morning to earn money. She completely dismisses all the evidence that they it were going prescribed. to pawn seen with lots of different men. Sorry? They were going to pawn shops <laughs> at 1.30 in the morning to pawn <laughs> their jolly bonnet to get their money at 1.30. Th- yes. I mean, come on now. <laughs> You know, the point I'm trying to make is actually the discussion is, was there misogyny then, really? I will say, so here's here's where I'm going to parse this. The police, looking at them as being unfortunate prostitutes in 1888, that was not misogyny. Hallie, having to whitewash their lives now and claim that they weren't prostitutes to redeem them, that is misogyny. 
looking at them in the 21st century and attempting to whitewash their lives is 100% misogyny. We should know better than to have to characterize a woman as being a mother or a sister or a wife to find value in her. We should be beyond that at this point. So the way that they were viewed in 1888 is just emblematic of how women's societal roles were then, but how Hallie is writing about them now is, in my opinion, 100% emblematic of the societal misogyny that is still problematic today, wherein we still write about, you know, I think I gave a couple of examples in my opening line about how women are viewed like Taylor Swift, who gives a flying rat butt over how many boys she's dated. Do you like her songs? Do you not like her songs? That's all that should matter. It shouldn't matter who she dates or how many dudes she sleeps with. She writes songs. We're still defining women based on the status of their vagina. And we should all be crawling out of women's vaginas and leaving that to them and just focusing on their achievements. Do you think, um, and this is for everyone, it's good to look at history through any particular lens. So whether it's a feminist lens, a racial lens, what do you think in terms of, again, that's all the part of current trends, looking yeah. at history, through, which is kind of what Hallie, I believe, is trying to do, however misinformed she might be? Sure. I think that you've got, you've got uh, m- myself personally, I have got an issue with the, the use of the word misogyny in the sense of tarring everybody with a brush of misogyny. I think it's a very strong word and I think that it effectively means hate and hate in my, I mean, it might be different in America, but to me on a personal level, the word hate is a very extreme word. And I think for me, I'm happier with the word sexism Mm -hmm. than I am with the word misogyny on the vast majority of examples. There is the odd misogynist out there, but sexism is, for me, I'm a a happier person using the word sexism. Um, With regards to to Samantha's question about effectively revisionist history, is that surely history should be based on facts. I mean, that's sort of a given, isn't it? (laughs) You know, if you're looking at history, you look at facts yes you can do those facts and you can interpret those facts and depending on what your viewpoint is you may come up up with a different um outcome than what another person comes out with but ultimately you're still looking at facts where you've got um an issue with people with it with agendas with their own narrative before they've even started is that you're going to end up when we goes goes without saying you're going to end up with facts being fitted to the narrative and not the opposite way around if you go in with an open mind then by definition you're going to come out with a solution afterwards it's going to be the opposite it's going to be the correct way and it's going to be the opposite way around but that's my just take on it i think, I think it's good to revise history there's nothing wrong with going back to the history books and looking at the evidence again to look at the facts again to even discover new evidence that might change the course of history to actually revise it in the sense that the revision means to me to go back and you think well actually this document that's appeared now you know has changed the, the view of how old is whatever it is there's nothing wrong with that but I agree with you I think that if you have a kind of an agenda as far 
far as if it's from a racist point of view or a feminist point of view or whatever, you're going to come, uh, you're going to come up with, like you say, interpreting things that suit yourself that you think, well, this shows this, this shows that without actually being uh, objective. I think it has to be done. It definitely, um, we've had history from one point of view for so long. We have to look at history from different points of view because there are so many demographics in every society that it's impossible to cover all of them with just one narrative. So we need people who, um, you know, almost like Hallie, she did really try to look at the victim's lives. She didn't do it in the best way. But like the woman who who did the 1619 project, you know, we need these scholars to bring out these stories so people understand what happened and understand history within a whole context. I agree with you 100% on that. I agree that it doesn't have to be done with bias. You can Mm -hmm. look at a particular segment of history, be it race or sex, Mm -hmm. without being biased about it and just say, this was the lives of this segment of the population while all this other more pomp and circumstance was going on here's the lives of these and it doesn't have to be about bias it can just be about here's other stuff that was happening while this was going on also just to briefly touch back on something Susie said where she said that for her she prefers to use the term sexism as opposed to misogyny just because she feels that's a more um, appropriate word for her. You know, I truly believe everybody should use the word that they feel best and, you know, matches their experience. Um, but I did just want to say that for me, I truly believe that misogyny is the best word that describes some of the systemic issues that I see occurring in, in our society today. And I definitely do differentiate between sexism and misogyny. um, And I use the terms according to what I see. And I don't use the term misogyny lightly. But um, when I do use it, it is because I do believe it is speaking to uh, the experience that I am having or experiencing or seeing as to some of the real issues that are underpinning some of the fundamental problems in our society today. And uh, when I say misogyny, it is, you know, what I believe to be the 100% correct and most accurate word uh, for my experience. And, you know, just in my life, I believe that we are currently living in uh not the handmaid's tale. I'm not going to be like, I would love to be that dramatic and say, yeah, we are on the verge, people. But um, when you go through life and you have multiple experiences, even if you don't allow them to define you or you don't allow them to bend you or you don't give into them and you're not a victim of them, when you have issue after issue from professors, your bosses, your friends, male friends and female friends, you know, and all of these things, because the society that you live in shapes their mindsets, their minds in ways of saying it's okay to treat women this way, then yeah, that's misogyny. That's thinking that women are lesser, you know, when it's okay for your professor to sexually, uh, holy cow, I can't think of the word, harass you or your boss to sexually harass you with no expectation of repercussions, you know, knowing that your degree is on the line, your job is on the line, and there's just no repercussions. 
that's not sexism. That's misogyny. That's a persistent belief that women are lesser, inferior, and not deserving of the same respect and care as men in that environment, which is hatred. That is less than humane treatment. So yeah, when I say misogyny, I do, I want you to know that I do truly differentiate between that and sexism. And, and, and I do not use that word lightly. And I do believe it might be different in, in England because I know like, it's really kind of funny. Like what we consider liberalism is probably what y'all consider conservatism over there. Like, cause I do know y'all lean a little bit more, less, uh, less conservative than we do. But, um, but yeah, so I, I truly, I think it's a difference in, in what we were founded on. Y'all kicked out all your crazy religious nuts and sent them over here. And thank you. Appreciate that. They found that house that I'm living in but um but yeah so i i i do believe that that we're dealing with some stuff over here that that so if i can just ask a question just on that sort of Mm -hmm. um idea um um amanda and samantha may or may not be able to back me up on this but um when i used to go out on a saturday night pre-marriage and i don't recall a saturday night where i didn't have some form of what i would term sexist behavior right now that generally meant um somebody saying something crude um Mm -hmm. That meant um, if you're on your way to the toilets, um, the bathrooms or um, uh, in a crowded pub and then uh, you'd get felt up. Um, that this that was in the 90s and through to, to past, past the millennium, that was the, nor- the norm. I had an incident with, with a, a bloke. I got a crossover top on and he tapped me on the shoulder and I turned to him and he got his hand and he put it not just inside my top, but he actually put it inside my bra. Um, and he did it as a joke with his mate. And I grabbed hold of him because it was a bar separating us. I grabbed hold of him and he thought I was going to say something really funny to him as though this is banter. And I grabbed hold of him and then I started pummeling on the back of his head with my fists. Um, yes. Fair. Um, and using some very choice language. Now, he's then turned around to me and started swearing back as though I was the one that was somehow out of order with regards to this. The Saturday night approach was, that was the norm then. I don't know whether it is the norm now because I can't comment on it, but that that was the norm then. Now, I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK, if you go, you went into a a town centre on a Saturday night, that is what ladies got. And if you fired back, then, you know, oh, you're just a, they, they generally throw the, oh, you must be a lesbian, um, you're just an effing so-and-so, blah, 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 and they'd fire back at you. And you'd be upset about it, but it was sort of, it became almost like water off a duck's back because it was the, it was the norm, it was every single Saturday. And is that, in American speak, is that these lads that were doing that who are now no doubt married with children, female children. Is that misogyny or is that sexism? I think that's a lack of awareness of what constitutes consent and and needing a good kick in the dick eight or nine times (laughs) until they learn better. Yeah. (laughs) Um, To be honest, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, it's kind of hard for me. 
and who am I? Like, I'm the great social psychologist to tell you or anybody else what differentiates. But to me, that's sexual assault. My line is like, there's misogyny, there's sexism. And then there's when you put your hands on me without my permission, that's sexual assault. That's neither. Like, nobody touches me without my permission. That's a totally different category. And uh, even in a bar, even if I'm dressed like a big old hoe bag, which again, in my teenage years, I was totally inclined to do. I can dress like a hoe bag if I want to, but putting the hands on is a different category. And not to say it never happened, but I was like you, if you put your hands on me, you regretted it instantaneously. And, and, but I, you know, I rarely had that issue. Like, I'm just going to be honest. So um, that's, that's neither sexism or misogyny. That, that's inappropriate sexual contact. That's a different thing like wolf whistling sexism inappropriate comments sexism uh misogyny in in my mind crosses the line when it's a power dynamic when there is some sort of power dynamic that is attempting to control the behavior of women on a systemic level it misogyny plays more into it's kind of hard to parse out in a freaking podcast when let's face it my migraine meds have worn off way long ago and my eyeballs throbbing but it, it's more about power dynamic it's the you're beneath me and i have power over you and i have so little regard for you that i'm going to assert my needs and wants over yours it's it, it's 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 a it's a special kind of contempt for a person <laughs> Could you, say that, could you say that misogyny is the belief system and sexism is the action as a result of that belief? That would be a very good and much more concise way of framing it. Yeah. That so would be... if you're a misogynist, you end up wolf whistling or whatever it might be. That and, would I, then and, I and I think sexism, you can you can have a sexist act without necessarily being a misogynist. God knows I, I, I occasionally say some really sexist thing against men sometimes and I'm not really a misandrist. And I think guys are equal to women most of the time. But, um, you know, I can be sexist on occasion. You can't have sexist behavior without fully subscribing to the misogynistic or misandrist point of view. But yeah, generally speaking, it's sort of like a, a symptom of the disease. Yeah. Another thing to consider is that misogyny and sexism are both interrelated. So the way I look at it is misogyny is the belief and then that motivates the sexism. And you don't have to be a misogynist to be a sexist because sometimes these things are so rooted within our culture and our everyday lives that we don't know we're doing it. Right, absolutely. And, and, and even on this podcast, there's been a lot of casual sexism that's just, I do believe it's so prevalent in our society in terms of things that we just take for granted as normal behavior towards women that we don't even perceive as being sexist. And it is 100% sexist. And we just, we brush it off as being the norm. Su you know, Susie sitting there telling us how it was just the norm for men to harass you when you would go out that's mm -hmm. just emblematic of this idea that women's bodies aren't their own like I, I think we've got okay. a problem that a lot of us like to turn a blind eye to and I also do believe that sexism especially against women is still considered one of the things that's acceptable to make jokes about to to brush off and brush aside far more than it is racism or you know you can't make a gay joke or your career is over. You know, you can't make, not saying that I think, oh, we should go around making gay jokes or not saying I think we should go around making jokes about black people. Absolutely not, not saying that. But 
you make a joke about gay people and the cancel culture will destroy you. You make a, a joke about uh, uh, racism or something like that, cancel culture will destroy you. Mm-hmm. But go around being casually misogynistic or casually demeaning towards women. And it's like, women just can't take a joke. Can't you just take a joke? It's still acceptable in our society to casually demean women in a way that it is not acceptable to casually demean any other minority or category. And that's just facts. What I love now about these younger girls that are coming up like they're calling men out on it. They're embarrassing them. Guys are, and it's not actually, I, I just saw an example of a woman at Disneyland who grabbed a character's chest, a man, and like he threw her, he threw her out. So, I mean, it goes both ways, but I'm, I'm loving that women are calling these men out publicly. Like they're recording this stuff. They're putting it online. These guys are, you know, getting, you know, humiliated online. Like women are not taking it anymore. And I love that. I love that we're, that we're doing that. The younger girls are just, they're taking control. And I love that. I think it's great. Do you think that the world is generally getting better or worse in terms of sexism and misogyny? Better. 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 Going back to what I was saying, men are getting called out for it now. I think it depends on which part of the world. I think it really does depend. I mean, if you Mm. focus on the Western world, then better. That's what I was about to say. But so many countries in the world, they're so absolutely backward and barbaric um it's really difficult i can't be relativist about it i'm afraid um some societies are better than others and uh, i'd much be happier living in the west than i would be living in certain parts of the world you look at afghanistan and what's going on yeah. there with the with the, the female uh judges and what have you and and having to attempting to escape and what have you i mean that they i'm sorry but they what well, i could put it constructively and say um that the, the the entire society needs re-educating or i could put it in brutal terms which is the blokes are like neanderthals uh they really are and the cultural differences are you know even within countries you will have communities where there'll be honor killings on a, and it's still going on now there's probably one going on right now but it's still happening in the UK. What, what do you do? And you can't even get into those communities to solve them because they'll all they'll all be a massive a massive veil of silence over it. You look at female female uh, genital mutilation as well. Exactly. So it's That's another one. I don't know what the answer is, but it's uh, yeah. I don't think education is quite the right thing. I don't know what is. Yeah. Ellie, what I don't understand over there is why are some states going backwards? regressing with you know you know with the abortion laws why are they regressing in that sense well i call it regressing remember what i said about y'all shipping your crazy religious nut bars over here and the overwhelming misogyny that that's what i was talking about and it would literally be a whole nother podcast like if you guys want to come back on and i'll give you like a whole breakdown but it would literally (laughs) take me two hours we have a whole bunch of bath awkward dumbasses in this country who i mean for sake we elected donald trump do i really need to say anything more i mean he it's legitimately just like don't get me wrong so i'm just gonna come right out and say i am not a liberal i am not a conservative i am an independent i cherry do you like hillary I don't hate Hillary. I think she was the best of a bad lot in terms of what mm-hmm. I have voted for, yeah. what I have preferred Hillary over, um, over Trump. 
yes, I would have 100% preferred Hillary Clinton over the rapist. Sure thing. Um, but didn't you know, Allie, like I knew, I, you know, I was talked to all of my friends and I'd be like, Trump's going to win. Oh, Trump's yeah. going to win. Like we Stephen all, did we not knew. believe it. Stephen did not. Yeah. I was like, on the, like, you don't understand. Elections are our Super Bowl. We have snacks wherever the two candidates are from. We have to have state sponsored snacks. So it's got to be like Texas barbecue and New Hampshire, whatever the hell they make. Mm-hmm. Like it's a thing in our house. And on that election, I was like, nope. I'm going to bed because I just want to wake up in the dystopian nightmare that I know I'm going to be living in. And he's like, no, there's no way. There's no way. And I'm like, yeah, he's going to win. Same same in our house. Anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're off. We're off topic. So at at the the Bay religious. Yes. God's gun and country. And and I only believe in one out of those three. So you Brits down here that almost right here what what are you guys thinking about the u.s right now do you think we're all just absolutely insane i don't understand some of it i don't understand the 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 abortion laws which recently and i'm just thinking to myself this is question this isn't progress i really could not get to it was like going down you know another hundred years ago you know and suddenly women's rights are being taken away from them I just thought that was most bizarre. I know it's not all states. I know it's just some. Mm. But even so, just the fact that we're in the 21st century now, and you think, where's that come from? You know, it's just bizarre. I found that really bizarre. I I, I don't understand the gun laws you have over there. I think that, but again, you know, we're very, we speak English, but we're very different countries. Mm -hmm. That's what Um, I was about to speak English, but we don't actually speak the same language. No. Because there is no, a difference. Quite, quite different. It really, really is. But it's hard to put into words. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's different cultures. It's different. You know, it's what you're used you to. You've owned a gun. Oh, I own many guns. Wow. So I mean, I a gun. I'd be scared of a gun. Well, also, you do need to understand, <laughs> though, that my father was a police officer. So, oh. what, about, con- what about you, Tiffany or, or Madeline? We have a lot. We have a lot of guns in our house. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Actually, let me tell you something. We have a gun safe full of them. And half of them were mine. Half of them were my husband. You know, my husband was born and raised in Dublin. And the first thing he did when he moved over here, he bought some guns and a big old pickup truck. Do you carry one in your purse, Miss Tiffany? I don't. (laughs) But let me tell you something. You got me beat there, but I seriously am thinking about getting one, you know, like I'm going to Florida and I was thinking, what, you know, do I need to get to Mace, a taser? You know, you just don't, I mean, shit is real out here, you know, and, you know, and you just, you know, I know you guys say, you know, get rid of all the guns and all that kind of stuff. And, There's no way and, we could at this point. You can, yeah, it's a not going to happen on a, on a 3D printer. They're printing guns. There's, we'll, yeah. we have such an ingrained gun culture. We will never get rid of them. And, and it's not like, I believe, like, I am 100%, like, I believe we should have a mental health check to own a gun. Absolutely. I believe yes. there should be a, a, a deep psychiatric evaluation. I am 100% on board with that. Like, I believe that you. You should have to qualify every couple of years, prove that you can still hit a freaking target. Like, I don't believe that they should just be handing out guns to any flipping body who wants one. I believe if I need a license to drive a car, I need a license to own a gun. Unfortunately, we don't have to do that, but I believe we should, you know, but, but yeah, it's. Things have to change. They have to change with all these school shootings and like, you know, right down the road from us, that's where that, uh, the grocery store where the guy went in and started shooting the place up and I'm watching the video of it and I'm sitting here crying watching these people 
running for cover, you know, because, you know, they have live video of it happening. Things do need to change. But- I lived in a gated community last year. It was a townhouse community. And I'm sitting there and there was a shooting in my gated community. Mm. And my friend's husband, the woman came running up to him, bleeding and collapsed mm. in his arms. And he's outside like at his, and this is a gated safe community in a safe neighborhood. And he, she's just laying on the ground and, and she's like, he's coming. And he like sends his daughter in and he just stayed there waiting for him, not knowing if the gunman's going to show up. And I was like, well, do you own a gun? And she's like, well, we're getting one now. And I'm like, right. That's exactly my argument for guns. And I agree with you 100% background checks, mental health checks. But at the same time, I feel like so many people have guns and there's so much crime. I want to be able to defend myself. I do not want to go down. If somebody shows up at my house and they come in my house, I'm going to fight. I'm not going to, I'm going to do something to defend myself. I'm just not going to lay there. We know if, in America, if, the police are not coming to save you. Right. They're here to clean right. up the mess after you're dead. Right. When we were having that conversation the other day about safety and women and, and misogyny and stuff, when you were telling me the story about the guy in the airplane and how it was a really threatening situation and you weren't sure how to get out of it. And we were talking about how I respond in certain similar situation. And, and you asked me a question, which I've been asked many times before by many women, which is, you know, something along the lines of, well, aren't you afraid of how they, you know, meaning men are going to respond? Aren't you afraid that they're going to come back on you? Right. Because like I was saying, you know, you see all the time women, if we don't give a phone number to a guy, he'll, he'll hit us or he'll stalk us or he'll kill us. I mean, there's so many stories about that. You've seen it. So you have, yeah, I think I respond differently in large part because of my dad, who again was a cop. And uh, when I was very young, very young, he pulled me aside and understand, like I grew up in Miami and if y'all don't know what Miami was like in the early eighties, it made the whole Rodney King riots look like a simple misunderstanding. To give you an idea, there was a t-shirt that was considered kind of like the symbol of that time. Um, and it was a picture of a hand pointing a gun straight out from the shirt. And it said, Miami, see it like a native. And, uh, you know, I had a guy try to kidnap me when I was eight and, and, you know, so all these things are going on and, you know, my dad was a cop and in the middle of all of this, and he pulled me aside and I know people are going to think, oh my God, this was, this was terrible parenting, but I personally think it was, it was great parenting. I think it was, I think it was one of the best life lessons I've ever gotten. And he told me, if you're ever in a situation, in a parking lot, in a gas station, whatever, and a guy comes up to you with a gun and tries to get you in a car or to go off with him, let him shoot you because you might die, but that's a far preferable death to whatever death that guy has in mind for you. So you run, you scream, you fight, you do whatever, but it's way better to die of a gunshot wound in a parking lot than it is with for the death that that man has in mind for you. And in every situation I've ever been confronted with, you know, I know that seems like a crazy thought to have in the back of your mind, but in a lot of ways, when women are confronted with these situations, they may not know it, they may not realize it, but what they're basically doing is 
they're just choosing how they're going to die. You know, it's like, is, is this the thing that I want to die over? Like, do I want to give this man my phone number or, or, or fake give this man my phone number? Or do I want to like go no and risk his wrath? And is this how I want to die? Am I going to choose this death? And, you know, me, I'm always like, yeah, I'm good with this death. Bring it on, you know, like, no. And, and I realize that's a crazy way of looking at it, but literally that was, you know. Yeah, but most women, we don't want to die. So <laughs> we want to take the easiest option. We, we pick the easiest option, you know. And But, you know, think about how many times in your life that you're in a situation, in a bar, in a club, in a whatever, and you just give in because it's easier. Mm-hmm. It's just easier mm-hmm. to, to do the thing, mm-hmm. to what. Well, you know, when we were having lunch the other day and you were telling me about that client you used to have, mm-hmm. it was so much because I knew what he was doing. He would come in and he would insist on getting a hug. He would come in to pay his rent. We're not friends. You're a customer. We're not friends. And he would insist on getting a hug before he left. I could feel what he was doing, mm-hmm. you know, when he was coming in for a hug and it disgusted me and I'd be pissed every time he left but I still did it because it was easier than the confrontation. And, you know, uh, this particular customer, this was in Wyoming, everybody there owns a gun and you just don't know what they're going to do. This guy, you know, he's a little bit off in the head. And I guess I would probably tell myself, well, you know, he's got some mental issues. So I'll just give him the hug. That was a way for me to make it okay with myself, you know, so I didn't feel like absolute shit for not standing up for myself. And so I chose the easier way to go. And, but it's not like every woman on the planet doesn't do that on a daily basis where it's, just it's such a common occurrence how many times a day can you be like I choose violence (laughs) and I know that that seems very dramatic to people who aren't women who've ever had an experience of something like that where a guy goes turns bad on you for simply saying no no thank you I don't want to you know take a hug or who's never been you know called a bitch because you refuse to date them like oh I'm obligated by the fact that I have a vagina to date any man who shows an interest in me. It's a very different concept of, of how women look at the world in a lot of ways. And, and I don't, and I think when people deny that there's misogyny in the world, they're willfully turning a blind eye because it's easier than dealing with the fact that we feel bad that we don't call it out because we're afraid to do so. And I don't blame women for being afraid to do so. We're biologically smaller. There's far less likely chance that, in, you know, if a, it's not like I think of a six, four dude comes after me, I'm going to win. I know full well, if a, if a, if a big, strong dude comes after me, I'm going down and I'm going down hard, but I also you know I'm a, bite that asshole in the kneecaps a whole bunch of times before I go right. down. Like the police are going to find his DNA, DNA in yeah. your mouth and on your finger. Like you're not yeah. going to get away with this. Just yeah. know that you might take me out, but I- I'm going to make sure that there's some, there's some evidence left behind if there, if it's the last thing that I do. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a different way of looking at the world. If you ever had an experience of, yeah. And if you haven't, if you're a woman who said, who 
honestly says there's not misogyny, then count yourself lucky. You are the exception to the rule because every woman I know has experienced it. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't, count yourself lucky. Can I ask a question? Um, sure. Just to um, go back a little bit more towards our original Oh, yes. We, we, we're going to have to wrap up. I'm going to yes. have to get an ending to this. We're going to have to come back to the subject um, eventually. I did, I did a little bit of research. <laughs> I was looking at authors and the split between male and female authors. And ripperology, obviously, is inundated with authors and, and, and researchers. And if you look on the Amazon charts today, Okay, this is for the UK, Amazon. Um, I just did it out of curiosity. In the fiction category, 20 of the top, sorry, 12 of the 20 top books that were sold this week were written by women. But if you look at the non-fiction category, only three out of the 20 were written by women. And if you break that down further into the crime thrillers and mystery category, 10 out of 20 were written by women. So fiction, thrillers, 10 out of the 20 were written by women. But if you go to true crime, nonfiction, six out of the 20 were written by women. Why does everybody think that women are more inclined to write fiction than nonfiction? I don't know. I have a theory. Go on. Madeline, as the resident author, would you like (laughs) to take a stab at that before I do? I have no idea, to be quite honest. And that's like the UK. Um, I think it just depends. Are these books traditionally pubbed or independently pubbed? Because if it's traditional publication, they do tend to follow um, more of like certain trends. But if it's independent, then that's a huge difference. Okay. It'll it'll be because of this, it's the charts and it will be the big sellers. Okay. Um, this, This will be, you know, all the publishing houses. Yeah, I'd be looking at probably what the traditional publishing is looking for because they do look for certain things every year or every quarter or whatever. Um, They do tend to, oh my gosh, I hope you don't hear my cat yelling. She's been yelling like she had her heart's broken because I had to lock her up. Um, Anyways, (laughs) no, I I think it just depends on what the traditional publishing houses are looking for. And um, if these are all tread, you know, it's just, are they traditionally or independently published that's the bigger question if it's traditionally published then it's probably has more to do with what the publishing houses want i hope that answers your question yeah i was just um i was more more curious as to why from an authorship point of view it's split sort of 50 50 or slightly more men and women in in fiction but when it comes to non-fiction uh, which obviously ripperology is and of course in ripperology we've got some very good um female authors you know helen i'm always going to mispronounce the name Wojcik. um you know i mean even patricia voice uh, uh, Vo- i can never pronounce it you know we've got tracy ianson as well who's, who's just published um a book and what have you but as it, from the, the stats and my recollection and awareness it seems to be that the true crime genre is predominantly male whereas fiction it's a lot more even and i don't i don't know the answer to it i'm just asking if anybody else knows the you know there the must be certain issues that 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 make those stats up. Well, if you think about, again, going back into history and things like that, when you start thinking about like obvious exceptions like Anne Rule and stuff, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going with generalities here. So I'm, you know, obviously there will be exceptions to the rule. But so if you look at the history of true crime authorship, 
it tended to be a lot of old police officers, the FBI profilers, like the wrestlers of the world. Uh, like I'm looking at, yeah. okay, so I've got my whole little true crime selection here and I'm looking at, you know, uh, the evil that men do, blah, 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 blah. All of my FBI, all of my criminal criminology textbooks, my forensic psychology textbooks, all of these predominantly written by men because those were the fields that men dominated. You weren't really having a whole lot of uh, women detectives. You weren't having a whole lot of women police officers. You weren't having a whole lot of women FBI profilers. You weren't having a whole lot of women in fields that... that kind of led into these research areas you weren't you weren't seeing that historically that wasn't their purview with the internet obviously a lot of things open up you know i think web sleuth that website was made by women i think a lot of the true crime websites were made by women but they were more um social research tools as opposed to sort of formula uh not formula formal tools you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the academic areas of research, which would lead into nonfiction books, were, historically speaking, the predominant domain of men. Whereas fictionalized books, Agatha Christie, uh, you know, Nora Roberts, uh, they were more an area that women could get into because uh, it was more imaginative, it was more creative, it was more socially acceptable in terms of women dipping their toe because it wasn't necessarily it was the purview of imagination versus the purview of actual experience knowledge real nitty-gritty you know uh and so I do think that just as a general basis in terms of historically speaking what women what fields women were in leads to a discrepancy in sort of the the areas that women yeah. will be in That's in nonfiction. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I think we'll see a shift in that as time goes mm. on and more women get into these sorts of things. But I don't think we have yet made up the numbers in terms of that mm. to see it on a on a, on a paper. On paper, we're not going to see that shift yet. I do think it will occur. I just don't think we've made yeah. it there. Yet. I mean, the, the, apparently, I mean, I'm only reading this on the internet. And therefore, it must be true. Um, but um, uh, apparently, the the, the majority of uh, audience, uh, be it podcast, um, be it um, uh, films, television, or books, apparently the biggest audience are women. Mm-hmm. Um, this is for true crime. So it's it's. I just find it quite. I think you're onto something there, actually, Ali, because that is definitely. Um, I don't, hadn't actually thought about that before, because to me, it just sounded like. My initial reaction when I read those stats was that is it because women lack the confidence of actually thinking they're good enough to actually go out there and say, look, this is my contribution. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely believe that plays a huge part in it. Yeah, right. because let's face it, you don't need to have a background in in any of this, but a lot of the way people get into it is through their career. You yeah. know, a lot of people mm. do jump into true crime writing through the the venue of their career. But, uh, but, but also, but also, you're only really going to be interested in what did the prosecution lawyer have to say, or what did the the head of the investigation have to say about the case. They're the people that for people want to know mm-hmm. because they're considered to have that bird's eye view in the way that a woman who isn't those things wouldn't have it. But like right. you say, that 
probably change. And there are quite a few books. I, I read, I mean, it's not, it's, you've probably heard of this one already, but there's a really good one on the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper, written by a woman, mm. very, very sensitively written, beautifully written by this woman, where she goes through how it affected the families and, and for generations. So I think these things will change, but like you say, historically, we, we have a lot to get over, don't we, really? Yeah, I think as well, I think it's quite interesting as well, as I was looking through these charts and you saw the people's names, particularly to do with the um, the, the, the fiction uh, thriller writing, that there was a lot of the uh, females who'd actually chosen to use their initials rather than their full name. Because if, if, you're, if you're called Betsy, it's not going to have quite the same impact as P.D. James. You know, it's 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 got more balls to it. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it were ironic there. Obviously, that sort of harps all the way back to sort of Georgian times where you've got like George Eliot and what have you, where there was a necessity to actually create the, these male pseudonyms because the, they just wouldn't publish female writers. But I, I just thought it was interesting. That was all. Just uh, I was just curious what people's opinions were on it. Um, another thing that we have to remember too is that um, you know with traditional publishing, especially there is a lot of gatekeeping that goes on, um, especially with the big four houses. So that might be just one aspect of what you're looking at. If you look more at independent publishing, um, that might offer a broader um, perspective on it because sometimes those books are not always counted. So it just really depends on um, I guess what you're looking at. That is a good point. The best resource probably to look at that, if you guys go to Twitter and you can search, even if you're not on Twitter, under the hashtag publishing paid me, and that will give you a really good perspective on um, how differently men and women are treated in the publishing industry. Some of it depends on genre. Um, even race can sometimes pay, play a factor because Rabia Chaudhry, who was behind the serial, or she was involved in the serial podcast, um, she actually, it turned out, was paid a lower amount for her book about Adnan than um, another true crime than someone else. I can't remember exactly what the context was, but it's a really, it'll really probably help answer Susie's question. I was going to say as well, just on another point, just while it's in my head, is that um, I was trying to get some stats um, of what struck me were the, the titles, because I'd done this Google search, uh, that did crop up on, on Google. And, and these blog posts, criminology articles from uh, Psychology Today and, and you know, all, all sorts of, of journals that, that, that came up. There was there's titles like, Why Are Women Obsessed With True Crime? There was another one. True Crime, Five Reasons Women Love It. Uh, another one. The Sad Reason Women Are More Obsessed With True Crime. And another one. Why are women drawn to true crime? This is why women are obsessed by true crime stories. It's like the writers are telling the public that it's unusual for women to actually be interested in true crime. And this has got, there has to be reasons for this. So uh, to to be actually interested in in something that's macabre or something that's violent is somehow wrong. And I think that that goes back, that stems right the way back to the whole Hallie thing, which is where um, she, the way that she's portrayed herself is sort of like the higher priestess preaching from the pulpit where her view is the only female view. It's the only reasonable female view. I take great exception to the fact that I'm being judged on my interests based, based on my gender. 
Yeah, um, I think that's a major issue that speaks to kind of one of the main bones of contention, not just that the women of ripperology, but all of ripperology have with the approach Hallie has taken with her book. And that is the overwhelming and blatant hypocrisy that she displays, especially when it comes to how she's promoting it. On the one hand, she claims to be championing the five on the grounds of womanhood, but she's reinforcing stereotypes that exist that being a sex worker, even if you're desperately poor and need to survive, is something that's somehow more egregious than being murdered, as if the press did them more wrong than the murderer did. She's also rip- using ripperology's trove of research without contributing anything of substantial value of her own, and then sneering at the group as if she's somehow different or better than other authors of ripper books. Uh, You know, there's this exchange online, and I'm not going to further plug her work. You can search for it if you want, where she uh, proudly points to this exchange she has with a ripperologist where she says to him, you need to read my book. And he responds back, you need to read mine. And she says, no, I don't. And she seems to feel that this is sort of emblematic of ripperology's dismissal of her, when in fact, it's the direct opposite. And it's it's blatantly hypocritical. She's used the decades of research that ripperologists have compiled, but then wants to set herself apart from, actually above them, as if her book, which literally contains nothing new that hasn't been done or written about before on the victims, and, and put it forth as the superior work And there's nothing original in it at all. But then, you know, she wants to hold herself apart and above us as if she's not out there promoting herself off the murders of these women, just like the ripperologist that she condemns. She might claim that her book is unique and that it alone doesn't glorify Jack the Ripper, but that certainly didn't stop her from slapping his name on the title to cash in on that name recognition and rake in those blood-soaked dollars. Now did it, you know? So it's a very telling sort of hypocrisy whereby she sits there sanctimoniously judging the world of ripperology while cashing in on it for every cent she can get from it. (laughs) All right. And with that, ladies, I think it's time to draw the curtain. We've been at this for over two hours, and while I know that we've still got a lot more to say, there will be another opportunity when we will all appear at the upcoming conference hosted by Casebook and RipperCast. This conference is going to take place online on October 30th, details of which can be found at both Casebook and Facebook pages, respectively. I've really enjoyed speaking to all of you today, and I think that we can all agree on one thing. We are a panel of six women of different ages, different backgrounds, religious affiliations, different political leanings, and different views on feminism, sexism, and misogyny. There's very few things that we unanimously agree on, but the one thing we all do agree on, as ripperologists and as women, is that this book did an incredible disservice to the field of historical research, but more importantly, it did a disservice to the lives of Polly, Annie, Liz, Catherine, and Mary. They deserved better.